I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. Today's guest, Naomi Oreskes, is a professor of the History of Science and affiliated professor of Earth and Planetary Sciences at Harvard University. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Los Angeles Times, and her TED Talk, Why We Should Trust Scientists, has been viewed more than 1.5 million times. She's the author of several books on the intersection between politics and science, including Why Trust Science, published in 2019, and Science on a Mission, How Military Funding Shaped What We Do and Don't Know About the Ocean, published in 2021. Reskis and co-author Eric Conway have collaborated on three books, including the recently published The Big Myth, How American Business Taught Us to Loathe Government and Love the Free Market, which is the subject of today's interview. So, Naomi, welcome to Delving In. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. So how did you and Eric Conway, both historians of science, become interested in the history of American capitalism? Was this a stretch or not so much? I would say it was a journey. Eric and I started working together on Merchants of Doubt back in 2005 when I had become the victim of attacks by the climate denial network or climate denial machine. And I was talking to some colleagues about what was happening because it was frankly a little bit frightening. And Eric, I met Eric at a conference and he said to me, Naomi, you know, the people who are attacking you are the same people who attacked the scientists who did the work on the ozone hole. And I thought that was pretty odd. And in a way, weirdly flattering because the scientists who predicted the ozone hole basically saved life on earth. And they were really heroes to me. They were people whose work was well known to me. And so Eric said, yeah, I've got a whole file of stuff on this. I'll send it to you. So he sent it to me. And that material was like the game Mad Libs. Remember that game? You could take out the word climate change and put in the word ozone hole. You could take out my name and put in the names of the ozone scientists. And I thought, wow, something very weird is going on here. So fast forward, five years later, we published Merchants of Doubt, which looked at why people would reject climate science, why intelligent people who were not necessarily shills for the fossil fuel industry would attack the science and say that climate change wasn't real when we had overwhelming scientific evidence that it was real and that it was hurting people. And so what we realized was that the answer it wasn't what most people thought. Most people assumed it was money, that these people had simply sold out for money. But what all of the evidence showed was that it was much more ideological, that it was driven by an ideological commitment to free markets based on the idea that somehow a free market economy protects political freedom. And so we left the book at that point, having done all this work to figure that out, that was where that book ended. And so that left us with an obvious big question, which was, why the heck do people believe that? <laughs> because it didn't seem to be any obvious historical evidence to support it. In fact, there seemed to be obvious historical evidence against it. And it really didn't add up intellectually, but there was no question that it was a fact that these people did believe this. And so that led us on a another journey to try to figure out where market fundamentalism had come from and why so many people believed in it, even though the facts of history, the facts of science, the facts of economics really argued against it. And so that's what the new book is, the answer to that question. So you were basically just following your story that you had discovered to the roots. We were following the story. And the other part of it is recognizing, which I'm sure you've recognized before these books, that scientists are people. And they're not absolutely perfectly objective, even though that's the ideal of science. Science is, is, can be an ideal, because, but also has to be done in practice. That's right. And one of the important arguments that I make in my 
work overall. And as you said, essentially in my work, I follow the leads. I follow where the story takes us. And that's different than what a lot of academics do, because as academics, we're trained to stay in our disciplines, to stay in our lanes. And up to a point, that's a good thing because you develop expertise. And as an expert in area, you do understand it in a deep way that you don't necessarily when you move into other areas, unless you do a lot of homework, which Eric and I do. But a lot of people, right. So one of the conclusions of my work is the shocking conclusion that you, that scientists are human beings and that they make mistakes and that they have values and that they're influenced by ideological considerations. So that actually became the subject of another book along the way, which is my book, Why Trust Science? Because the argument I make in that book, which is definitely informed by Merchants of Doubt, but also my experience of 30 years as a scientist and also a historian of science, is that what makes scientists objective is not the objectivity of the individual scientist, but the processes that scientists participate in, the give and take, the criticism, the processes of mutual criticism where scientists allow their work to be criticized by others, they allow errors to be identified, and then they make the best effort they can to fix, to correct those errors. And so the objectivity of science emerges through these processes, you can call them sort of processes of objectivities or methodologies of objectivity. So it shifts the focus away from the individual rather than thinking about objectivity as a quality that it inheres in an individual. So we would say, I am objective. Rather, you realize, no, people are not objective. That's the reality. But what's great about science is a set of practices that enable the group as a whole to come to a collectively objective conclusion. So in other words, truth will win out in the end if you shine enough light on the subject. And if enough people looking at the problem from different angles are able to be engaged in the process, which is why I argue in Why Trust Science, why diversity in science is so important. It's not just something that we like to do because it's the right thing to do, although it is the right thing, but also because it actually makes our science better. Right. But then you have the scientists who almost seem hired, or maybe they're not literally hired, but close to it. And they're going against the grain, right? They're going against the received wisdom or the large majority opinion, at least. And somehow they keep at it because they can argue that science is sometimes advanced by the lone dissenter. That whole idea that science advanced by the lone dissenter is mostly not true. It's mostly a myth. It is advanced sometimes by people who have creative ideas or people who have new evidence that hasn't been seen before, but then they have to explain it to everyone else and they have to make the case. And it's that process of making the case, which is really what makes science advance. Bringing the proof, bringing the evidence. And that's why this, these different books are actually interrelated, right? Because now we find scientists who step outside those communal practices, who step outside the practices of objectivity, and they say, oh, but I'm right and everyone else is wrong. That's what climate change denial is all about. And what we show in the book is, well, those people have, there's a story to be told about those people. And it's really a story of those people rejecting the standards of science, allowing themselves to be driven by their ideological commitments. I have to admit, I was immediately intrigued by the title of the book, The Big Myth, How American Business Taught Us to Loathe Government and Love the Free Market. And I have to say that the contents of the book lived up to my expectations from the title. And I'm wondering which came first, the title or something like the title or the book? Uh, the book came first. We really struggled with the title of this book. The original title was The Magic of the Marketplace, A True History of a False Idea. And I still think that's a great title because it does explain what the book is about. But the problem with that title, our marketing division thought, is they thought people would just see the magic of the marketplace and think that this was a brief 
for free markets right. and the ideology of free markets. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense to talk about this with in the terms of myth, because myth has more than one meaning. Myth is often used as something that's not really true. But the other meaning of myth is that it's a foundation story for a culture. Exactly. And so that's why we concluded that this was actually the right title. That's really, this is really a history of a myth. And it's exactly what you said, a kind of foundational idea, an integrating idea, an overarching framework that people interpret a lot of things through. And they're could be good myths. I'm not saying that all myths are necessarily bad. Like a lot of people, I read Joseph Campbell, but this myth is a very damaging myth. And so that's part of the point we want to make in the book, that the myth is damaging. It's standing in the way of us solving really important problems. And it comes from somewhere. It didn't just evolve naturally in the way that maybe some of the myths of ancient civilization did. It was actually actively constructed by business leaders to serve their political purposes. I have a theory that some of these ancient myths were actually manufactured too, but they don't seem that way because it's been so long. <laughs> the case, but I'm not a classicist, so I'm not in a position to make an argument. And the other thing about a myth is that it's to modern years, it sounds undeniably true. It's just a foundation myth and it must be true. It's, that's, what we, that's what we believe. Right. And that's the power of the myth, right? Which is why we wanted to use that word. So one of the biggest players in your book is the National Association of Manufacturers, NAM. I don't know if you pronounce it NAM or NAM, but they proposed or inculcated, I should say, the myth of, that American prosperity is built on individual initiative and that government involvement in the marketplace is destructive and a system with anything less than complete economic freedom would soon brook no freedom at all. That's from your book. And that's in a nutshell what we're talking about here. Right. So in the book, we show how there's a group of players who are central to the story. And one of those players is, we call it NAM, but it might be NAM, I don't know. But the National Association of Manufacturers, who were in the 1920s and 30s, America's largest trade organization, representing the people who owned manufacturing facilities all across the United States. They still exist today. And even today, they fight against climate change regulation. And I recently learned they've been fighting against rules that the SEC has been trying to put forward about disclosure of minerals and commodities from conflict regions. So they continue to be active today, fighting what I would consider to be appropriate progressive reforms and statutes. But NAM is really key to this story because they were one of the main players who helped to develop this ideal or this ideology that economic freedom was central to the United States, that the United States had been built on individual initiative, and that if you compromise economic freedom, you're on the road to totalitarianism. Now, this was really an invention. It's not based on the truth of 19th century history. In fact, one of the hypocrisies of NAM's position was that NAM itself had been created in the 19th century to argue for protectionist tariffs to protect American manufacturers against European competition. So in the 20th century, they completely flipped their position uh, when they decided it's in their interest to do so. But the history of the 19th century was a history of massive government involvement in the marketplace, government building infrastructure like roads and bridges, government imposing protective tariffs, protectionist tariffs to help fledgling manufacturers in the United States, government building things like the Erie Canal. So huge amounts of government activity in the marketplace. And there's no evidence whatsoever that made Americans less free. In fact, arguably it made us more free because now we had roads and bridges and canals through which we could travel and trade goods and services. But in the 20th century, in the light of progressive era reforms, NAM flips that script. 
And so what are they fighting? What is it that, why do they think they need to flip the script? Because in the early 20th century, reformers, and actually even in the late 19th century, reformers begin to point out some of the ways in which unregulated capitalism is failing the American people. The most obvious example is the rise of monopolies in the late 19th century, the trusts, the robber barons that we all learned about in school. So you had a very small number of men amassing giant fortunes, not unlike what's happening again today, and doing it through monopolistic practices. And so the Sherman Antitrust Act was passed to try to prevent that concentration of money and with it the distortions of democracy that followed by preventing monopolistic practices, and in fact, by protecting capitalism against capitalists. That was a very successful statute. So in the early 20th century, reformers start looking at other things as well. And they start looking at things that we refer to as the social costs of capitalism, the real hurt that is being done to people through the normal practices of American capitalism. So this includes child labor, which was rife in the late 19th and early 20th century, and workplace injury and death, which was also epidemic. In fact, there was so much workplace injury and death in the United States in the early 20th century that people referred to it as an epidemic of workplace injury, and they even had a name for it. They called it the accident crisis. And part of the reason there was so much death and injury in the American workplace was because there were very few regulations about how factories should operate, how the railroad should operate, how mines should operate. And so reformers began to argue that we needed some kinds of laws some kind of statutes to prevent child labor so children could go to school rather than work in a factory and also to do someplace about workplace injury. And in response to these reforms, the business community said, oh no, you can't do that. Now, if they had said, you can't do it because we don't want you to, because we want to make as much money as possible, we would have all seen that was pretty venal and probably not been persuaded by it. So instead they try to make their argument seem virtuous. And they do that by linking it to something that everyone believes in, which is freedom. Now, in later years, the tobacco industry would do exactly this thing. They would have a big campaign about the freedom to smoke. So one of the things we learned in this book was how much further back this story goes than people had previously known. So they begin to make this case about capitalism and freedom, that the free market economy protects political freedom, that it's foundation to American culture, that it's foundational to the American way of life. And if you allow the government, and they introduce the language here of big government to replace the language of big business. So it's about, no, the problem is not big business. The problem is big government because big government threatens your freedom. Yeah. So I, I think it's important to point out that what's really dangerous is when it becomes black and white thinking, that either you're with business or you're with the government. You can't have both. And I think once you allow there to be some nuance, then you can have honest disagreements, right? About how much to support business, how much to support regulations to control business. The important thing here is that the business interests were promoting a kind of black and white thinking that either you have laissez-faire, completely laissez-faire business practices with no interference from the government, or you have the slippery slope to totalitarian control. And if you allow for nuance, then you can have some honest disagreements. And it, it seems like that the Republican Party used to have more nuance, for instance. Exactly. And this is a major part of the book, that part of the way this ideology, the big myth works, is by creating a false dichotomy, that the only choices we have available to us are laissez-faire economics with essentially few, if any, restrictions on the marketplace versus Soviet-style dictatorship on the other. 
And so throughout the 30s, 40s, 50s and forward, they promote this idea. And this really, a big part of our argument is to say that this blocks the conversation that we should be having about the right balance between market-based economics, which obviously are good for many things, but also the appropriate role of government in protecting workers, protecting consumers, protecting the environment, stopping monopolistic practices, etc. But that conversation gets weakened and eventually, we want to argue, more or less shut down by this false dichotomy. And maybe one reason for the dichotomy is that if business interests could somehow convince voters to never interfere, then you have a kind of a generic free pass to do anything. Exactly. If you have to argue for each regulation, that's much more time consuming and expensive. Exactly. So instead of having to lobby about every particular bill, every particular issue, every piece of legislation about air pollution, water pollution, workplace safety, all you have to do is say, oh, but this is the slippery slope to socialism. And so then if you can persuade people that's true, you've really solved a lot of your problems. And this is what eventually happens as Ronald Reagan then takes up these ideas and brings them into mainstream Republican politics. And in the book, we point out that Republicans didn't always think the things that most of them think today. If you look at the Eisenhower era, Dwight Eisenhower completely accepted social security. And there's a famous line where he writes to his brother and he says, if any party wanted to abolish social security, you'd never hear from those people again. And he goes, there are a few of them, but their number is very small and they're stupid. Although that particular one, I think, is still true. I don't think it would be easy even for the modern Republican Party, even if they were in full control of all the branches of government, to dismantle Social Security and Medicare. I don't think that could happen. It's true, but there's certainly a whole lot of them who are trying. They're reviving today an argument that they've used twice before to claim that Social Security doesn't work, to claim that the system is broken, when in fact it works extremely well and it just needs periodic adjustment, like any, like an old car needs periodic adjustment. So we do see the Republican Party today trying to make the case that Social Security should be privatized. You might remember that during the administration of George W. Bush, he tried to argue for privatization. And I argue, and I think that one of the reasons why Republicans love to hate Social Security is because it refutes their argument. It is big government and it works really well and people like it and it has achieved its goals of preventing financial insecurity in old age. So because it actually works well, it refutes their argument, as Ronald Reagan used to say, everything that government does nothing as well as the private sector, everything the government does was wasteful and inefficient. But it's not just social security, look at child labor. We began the book with child labor because that was the first place where we saw these arguments really beginning to take hold. And even when we were writing the book, I remember Eric and I saying at one point, the Republicans would never be stupid enough to go after child labor. And look where we are today. Ten states now have passed laws weakening child labor protections for teenagers. No, no eight-year-olds yet. We're not down to eight-year-olds yet. But you know, that, this one is a slippery slope, right? We make the case that teenagers can work in dangerous meatpacking factories, or I forget which state it was, but one state had a rule that uh, they had to have parental permission to work, and they've now ruled that back. So once you eliminate the protections, okay, maybe they're 16 today, but will they be 14 next year? Or will they be 12 the year after that? Yeah, one of the points you make in the book is that at least some of the capitalists use social Darwinism as their justification, that they deserve to be in the position they're in because competition means that the best 
and most deserving somehow. The best and the most deserving are the winners and the winner, and it's a circular argument, of course. Exactly. So one of the questions I get all the time is, do these people really believe these things or is it just cynical? And that's a hard question to answer. And you're not always able as a historian to be able to answer it. But sometimes you do find documents where you see people grappling with the questions. And so we found one very telling document that was written by Noel Sargent, who was the architect of the NAM propaganda campaigns in the 1930s and 40s. And he writes this piece called The Trouble with Socialism. And it's an interesting piece because he's clearly read the work of Norman Thomas, who was the head of the American Socialist Party at that time when we actually had a socialist party in America. And he's clearly thinking about it. He's clearly taking it seriously. And basically his answer to what's wrong with socialism is social Darwinism. He says people are not equal. And he defines equality, and this is the intellectual slippage. He defines equality as identity. And he says, look, it's, we're obviously not all the same. Of course, the concept of equality doesn't say we're all the same. We know we're not all the same. It says we all have equal rights under the law and we should all have equal opportunity to succeed and thrive in society. But this idea of social Darwinism, that some people are, are not as fit, and that competition sorts out the fit from the unfit is then used to justify why competition has to be the dominant organizing principle of society rather than let's say compassion or community, the common good. And then, as you said, in a circular argument, it's used to justify why the children of immigrants should in fact be working in factories. But then of course, they never get the chance to go to school to prove that they actually could do more in life. And so then they don't do more in life. And then that's, taken as proof of the theory that these people are inferior. So one of the big sections in the earlier part of your book is about the electric power industry. I thought that was a great example because you have the need for profit in order to bring electric power to wherever, but then you also have the other problem is, and that's, will it only be brought to areas of high density because that's the most profitable? So rural areas were unserved and they probably would have continued to be unserved if there hadn't been intervention. Exactly. So this is a really beautiful example of how the market fundamentalists deny the reality of market failure and try to tell a story about how it's all great, it's all good, and we don't need the government. But it wasn't all great, and it wasn't all good. So in the early 20th century, electricity was developed in the United States as what was known as a natural monopoly. The idea was that it would be inefficient to build multiple competing electricity lines. So it was legitimate that certain companies would dominate in certain markets. And the idea was that in exchange for those, the rights to work in those markets, they would also serve the people. But in fact, they hadn't. They had served urban areas very well. So by the 1920s, all the major urban areas of the United States, New York, Chicago, St. Louis, had been electrified, but rural areas were mostly not. And the reason was because there weren't enough people, as you said, it wasn't dense enough for them to be able to make a profit. There's a line we quote in the book where a GE executive says, yeah, the rural customer isn't a profitable customer. I mean, there's just no, not enough. So the government, then people begin to say, okay, if you guys are not willing or able to bring electricity to rural customers, then maybe the government should. And in response to this, the electricity industry through their trade organization, a group called NILA, the National Electric Light Association, organizes a massive propaganda campaign in which they rewrite textbooks, they pay colleges and high schools and emerging business schools 
to rewrite their curricula to be anti-regulation, anti-government, pro-free market, and to promote this idea that we can trust capitalism, we can trust free markets to solve all our problems, even when the evidence right in front of their faces is telling them the opposite. And so this is partly how we begin to construct the story of how we know that this is a myth and how we know it's propaganda, because they deny the facts of their own industry to construct this story about the wonders of American capitalism and to do it through means such as rewriting textbooks. And weren't they also even opposing collectives that were trying to join together to bring electric power to themselves? One thing I love about this example is that to a modern person, it's almost hard to imagine that there was once a time without electricity and, and that it wasn't just all set up all at once. And, it wasn't, and we have something very similar now with high-speed internet access. The rural, rural areas don't have it. It's very analogous to what's going on today with high-speed broadband, because when, you, when the profit motive is the driving force, that works well when the profit motive is aligned with what people need and want. And often that does mean that cities are more well-served than rural areas. And so one of the roles that the United States government has always played historically, whether it was telephone, telegraph, radio, electricity, or today internet, was to bring services, to bring essential services to people who needed it in areas where the profit margin or the profit motive didn't lead corporations to do it on their own. And the U.S. mail is another example. Post office, that's right. The post office is written into the Constitution as well. And it's interesting because later on in the book, we talk about an attack on the post office. You'll you notice there have been throughout our lifetimes, right, repeated attacks on the pro- post office, attempts to privatize it, again, because it doesn't fit the ideology. But in fact, if you think about why is the post office in the Constitution of the United States, because actually, in general, the Constitution doesn't say much about business or economics, because mail delivery was considered an essential good, a public good, and it wasn't even conceived that could ever even be done by the private sector. Now, today with FedEx, UPS, etc., we can we could have a conversation about whether we still need the post office today, and maybe we don't. But I think a lot of people in rural areas still rely on the post office, not just for their mail, but for other services that post offices provide, like getting a passport or other things like that. So the beginnings of this idea about the holiness almost of free market capitalism had a rough start because of the Great Depression. That was not a great time to promote this idea. (laughs) Exactly. So in the face of the Great Depression, you might have thought that they would say, oh, yeah, yeah, there's something to this government thing. And some business people did. And there's some interesting divides that developed at this time that we talk about a bit where there were business leaders who did cooperate with FDR who did cooperate with the development of social security and who recognized that some of the changes that were put in place at this time, particularly the FDIC, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, to help prevent bank runs, was clearly in the interest of the business community for the FDIC to exist. And we've seen in the last few weeks how when some of these libertarians in Silicon Valley who hate government suddenly were there saying, wait, we need the government to save us when the Silicon Valley bank collapsed. It's easy to think you don't need government when you don't need it. And then when you do need it, things can look a little different. During the Great Depression, we do see significant sectors of the American business community and what we could call moderate Republicans cooperating with FDR to build the New Deal. But there's another sector, and that's the focus the people were focused on in our book, that include the people who were involved in NILA, the people who were involved in NAM, who doubled down. And so at this point, we see the propaganda getting even greater. 
And so Nam builds on what Neela had done in the 1920s, but takes it much further. They begin to try to influence film. They develop a syndicated radio program that is played on 300 radio stations across America. They work to influence children's books. They develop magazines targeted at teachers, separate magazines for teachers, for ministers, for young people, all of which glorifying American capitalism and telling a story about American prosperity being based on the free market even in the depths of the Great Depression. And they just keep at it. They spend literally hundreds of millions of dollars between like 1937 and 1949. And they actually later get investigated by Congress. So we have pretty good data on the amount of money that was spent because of these congressional investigations. Now, in the end, Congress concluded they hadn't actually broken any laws because most of what they had done was protected by the First Amendment. Although, in hindsight, I think one could have a different interpretation of that because courts have held since then that the First Amendment does not protect fraud. And I think some of what they did possibly did rise the level of fraud. But the tricky thing about this is that if you lie about a product, like if you claim tobacco is safe when you know it's not, that's fraud. And in later years, courts would hold that the tobacco industry had committed fraud. In this case, they're not really lying about particular products. And electricity was actually pretty good. <laughs> it's not that the product was a bad product. Actually, it's the opposite. The product was such a good product that everyone wanted it, right? Or in the Great Depression, people wanted jobs. So there's not, it's not really a fraudulent claims about a product. It's, a, it's an ideology that is essentially fraudulent because it denies the facts of history, but it falls into the category of political speech. And so it's largely protected, even if it's so I'm just wondering, you're talking about like an extensive media campaign, very expensive books, pamphlets, magazines, comic strips, films, radio shows. You mentioned the American Family Robinson, I think was the name of the TV series, co-opting academics, evangelical ministers, thought leaders. Does the word conspiracy apply here? Just because, And I ask that in a very serious way, because when you call something a conspiracy, it re removes its legitimacy, as opposed to just an ideology that's being expressed through these all these various me means. We, we get that question a lot, of course, and it's obviously a very charged word, so we generally try not to use it. But our whole approach is to lead the reader to water and then let them... <laughs> I don't know if I want to drink this Kool-Aid, though. But you get the point. Does it, does it rise to the level of a cons criminal conspiracy? That would be a question for someone else, a lawyer. But certainly there's no question that there's a network, that it's coordinated. We have documents in which they lay out the plans where they should explicitly say, this isn't working, so we're going to try something else. There's one document that I particularly liked from NAM where one person says, look, in the face of the Great Depression, American business as the defender of American prosperity doesn't seem really credible. So we need to link this argument to something everyone believes in, and that's freedom. So we see them very deliberately, very consciously trying to attach their interests to the ideals of American freedom and liberty. And this comes up in a lot of the propaganda. So there's a film that we write about in the book. It's called Your Town. And when I give talks, I give clips of this film. And the film begins with the American flag waving, pictures of the Liberty Bell, town hall, and then we come into the town to hear a story about how American capitalism has made all the greatness of this town. And then at the end, it goes back to these symbols of American liberty and freedom with my country, tis of thee, playing in the background. So the whole point of the propaganda is to link the argument to things that people love, things that people cherish, and therefore to make them think the argument is true, even when it really isn't. 
So it's really, in a sense, pushing the boundaries of what would be acceptable marketing practices. And it's pushing right up to the edge. For sure. And Neela was also investigated. And in hindsight, if Neela were to do today what they did, then it would definitely violate Securities and Exchange Commission's regulations. But many of these regulations were not put in place until the 1930s. So certain things that were legal then would not be legal today. But then there's also the question of enforcement. So one of the things that these folks do is they don't just work to weaken laws they don't like. So they have a concentrated or concerted campaign to overturn the Wagner Act that guaranteed the right of workers to collective bargaining. And they support the passage of the Taft-Hartley Act in the 1950s that greatly weakens protections for unions. So where they can, they try to pass laws that are in their own interest. But where they can't do that, they then work towards non-enforcement. Apologies to our listeners about the sirens in the background. Just to prove that you're in an urban area, right? Of LA. <laughs> Let me talk a little bit because it's not on my end. Roosevelt talked about the four freedoms, freedom of speech and expression, freedom to worship God in one's own way, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. And somebody named Feifeld, if I'm pronouncing that right, thought that freedom from want was a threat to capitalism because in his mind, it meant that the government was encroaching on a key church domain, namely charity. That if the government was going to help people have security, whether it's social security or any other kind of security, that's something for religion to supply, not for the government. Exactly. And so this is, and to me, one of the saddest chapters in the book, because here we see how the social Darwinist attitudes play in, in a way that is frankly cruel. So many of these people think that want actually is necessary, that if people don't suffer want, they won't be motivated to work hard. And in addition, that if they don't suffer want, they won't turn to the church for support and help. And so he develops this whole argument about Christian freedom and Christian capitalism to say, if the government steps in to help people who are on bread lines, then they won't turn to the church and they won't turn to God. And so it's an explicitly religious argument for the benefits of suffering. And it's a very strange argument, but it's one that I do think that these people, many of them hold sincerely. And it's interesting because it goes back to an argument that Herbert Hoover made during the Great Depression, that yes, he was sympathetic to these people, but it wasn't the role of the government to fix it. And the reason why, one of the reasons he lost the his bid for re-election in 1932 is because people said that might be fine in theory. In theory, it would be great if private charity could help all these people. But the scale of the problem was so great that private charity was completely overwhelmed. And that's why the government had stepped in. But in the 1950s, James Fifield and his group, it's called Spiritual Mobilization, try to essentially erase that history, erase the reminders or the memories of the Great Depression where private Charity had tried. It's not like churches hadn't tried to help people in 1929, but the scale of the problem was just too much for private charity to be able to cope with. You don't pull any punches, I think, in calling out all these distortions and lies and the scope of the propaganda campaign. One of the, I think, really interesting highlights of the book was your critique of the summaries that were made of Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations, that it was summarized and rewritten to omit any mention of the need for government regulation. And I have to admit that I don't have a really strong background in economics, and I thought Adam Smith was the free market guy. <laughs> so it was really enlightening for me. 
Most of us have been raised to think that Adam Smith was the founding father of capitalism, that he was the free market man, and that he believed in laissez-faire, and we didn't need government. We just let the market do its magic, let the invisible hand do its work. It turns out most people have clearly never read Adam Smith, because if you actually read his work, you find a very different person than what you have been led to believe. And so we spent quite a bit of time actually reading The Wealth of Nations, and what you find in that book are extensive discussions of the places where the market doesn't work, things that government has to handle. And one of the most interesting parts I thought was that Adam Smith has a long discussion about banking regulation, something much in the news these days. And he says, you have to have banking regulation because the self-interest of bankers will lead them to do reckless things that put the entire banking system at risk. And if the banking system falls, the economy falls. So why don't we know about this? And he also has discussions of the need for government investment in public goods like roads, bridges, infrastructures, the need for a proper system of taxation. He even has a discussion of the need for progressive taxation. He would not have supported a flat tax. And he has a discussion of why it's appropriate for workers to unionize in order to level the playing field against the power of factory owners. So it's a very different person than most of us have been led to believe Smith was. So why do we not know this? Why do we all have this image of Adam Smith that's very different from that? And I think part of the answer has to do with our story, because one of the things we show is that when the Chicago School of Economics gets really going after World War II, they are funded by a group of business people who are consciously trying to promote an extreme laissez-faire vision of American economics. And one of the people that they help to hire there is George Stigler, who publishes an edited version of The Wealth of Nations in which all these caveats, all these examples, all these exceptions are removed. Now, we don't know how many people actually read this book. We tried to get sales figures on this book. It's not clear how many people, but we certainly know that the Chicago School of Economics became the most influential program in economics in the United States from 50s onwards. And we can say at least with confidence that they were promoting this vision of Adam Smith, this very distorted, very one-sided vision of his argument. I also want to talk about how the ideology became almost a religion. And you quote Margaret Atwood in her nonfiction book, Payback. She concludes that somewhere in the 20th century, people began substituting something called the market for God, attributing the same characteristics to it, all knowingness, always rightness, and the ability to make something called corrections, which like the divine punishment of old, had the effect of wiping out a great many people. So in this framework, it's easy to see the invisible hand as the hand of God. Though sometimes inscrutable, the market, like God, had the power to achieve good ends out of what on the surface might seem like bad means. And that would be, I think, one reason why someone like Herbert Hoover, even when the Depression started, saying, it's okay, the market will handle it, will handle it. Year after year, it'll handle it. And there's no, no intervention can make it better than the market eventually handling it anyway. So don't try. Exactly. And so this is why we call it market fundamentalism. And we didn't invent that term. Other people have used it before us. But it is a kind of fundamentalist belief because it resists being revised in light of evidence. And this is what makes this kind of economics fundamentally unscientific. I'm not saying all economics is unscientific. I certainly have colleagues in economics who I think are excellent social scientists, but this branch, this way of thinking is unscientific because it refuses to revise its views in line of evidence. And that's where this book connects 
to my earlier work on white trust science. So Herbert Hoover is a really interesting case in point because in many ways he was a good person. He had headed up famine relief after World War One and had arguably been responsible for saving possibly millions of lives in Europe. He wasn't a heartless person, but he believed so strongly that it wasn't the role of government to fix these problems because he buys into this idea that if you do, he, he accepts the false dichotomy of free markets versus totalitarianism. And so he says, yeah, we really can't, we have to ride this out. The market will correct itself. And for six months or a year, that might have been a legitimate position to take. But at a certain point, when things are getting worse, not better, when the market is not correcting itself, when the economy is actually in a free fall and banks are collapsing and there's nothing that the market can do to stop runs on banks, you have to stop and say, okay, this idea is not working, but that's what you can't do. And so that's in a sense why we have the New Deal and why people, the vast majority of Americans recognize that you do need government to step in and be active on behalf of protecting the banking system, protecting workers, helping people who are out of jobs, et cetera. Yeah, at the very least, making the rules and the guardrails. And the, the example that you often bring up in the book is about driving. Car, you can't just go any which way you want in a car. You have to go with the traffic. You have to obey traffic lights. You have to obey traffic signs. It's not a, it's not a free-for-all, though I think it was originally. I think in the footage of the Lower East Side, and you have cars and horse and buggies and pedestrians and bicycles all... We develop rules for a reason. And I always like to use the example of a red light. Nobody would say we shouldn't have stop lights or stop signs because if we don't, cars crash. But that's a regulation, right? Or even think about speed limits on freeways. Since I'm in Los Angeles, I think this is a good example. So to get on the freeway here, you have to go on an entrance ramp. Well, actually you do in New Mexico too. But here, sometimes the entrance ramps are metered. There's a red light and you have to wait your turn. So that's slightly annoying. You have to wait five seconds. But in exchange for waiting five seconds, the traffic flows, well, most of the time. <laughs> Slowly. And But actually, a lot of times when you get on the freeways, now you get to drive 75 miles an hour. So it's not just that the rule makes the road safe. It's actually empowering. We get to drive a whole lot safer, a, lot, a whole lot faster because we actually have these rules and regulations. And by the way, everyone on the road has a license to drive because we know that it's too unsafe to just let anybody get behind the wheel. And of course, I know this is New Mexico, so maybe some listeners won't agree with me, but I always say, so we accept that you need a license to drive a car. So isn't it pretty much the same to say someone should have a license to own a gun? Really? Yeah, we probably won't get into that because that's too involved. But re re regulation, government regulation is one aspect, but then there's also government can actually provide things more than just regulation, like things like roads. And one thing that, that I find rather amazing and troubling at the same time about the other position about free market fundamentalism is that there's no recognition whatsoever that the government can be seen as the collective will of the people. After a democracy means that they're elected by, if not by the public, by electors, but at least even if it's indirect, it's democracy. That's the whole point. Exactly. And I think in a way, this is the most pernicious of all the various pernicious aspects of this ideology to turn us against government, right? To make us think that government is the problem, not the solution, because government is us. Government is, as you said, in a democracy, government is the most important tool we have as citizens to express our will. And so if you persuade people that government's the enemy, that you, know, you should hate the government, you should oppose government action, you disempower democracy. And I think that is in fact what has happened in this country. 
Yeah, it means that there is no collective will, only the will of the most of uh, the wealthiest. That's the will. If you talk about freedom, when you talk about the sheep and the wolf, which freedom are you talking about? The wolf's freedom to eat the sheep or the sheep's freedom to not be eaten? It's going to be conflicts, obviously. Exactly. And fundamentally, that's what this whole story comes down to. It comes down to the age-old problem of competing freedoms. So it's never going to be the case in any society that everyone gets to do exactly what they want, because my freedom to do certain things could impinge upon your freedom to do other things. So I'm not free to dump my garbage on your front lawn, for example. And I'm not free to dump air pollution into the atmosphere, although 100 years ago, I would have been free. So what we think are appropriate freedoms and what we think are inappropriate activities is a judgment call. It's a social, it's a decision process. So at one point, people in this country were free to buy and sell. Other people were free to deny the freedom of others. And we rightly fixed that. And of course, this is one of the big arguments of our book is that the most obvious refutation of the claim that capitalism protects freedom is slavery. During the 19th century, 4 million people were enslaved in this country and capitalism did not protect them. In fact, there were slave markets all over all over the southern United States. So the fact of a market does not protect people's freedoms, but we make choices about what we consider appropriate or inappropriate. So we no longer allow people to buy and sell other people. We no longer allow factory owners to dump toxic waste in rivers and lakes and streams and the atmosphere. And yet we do allow them to dump carbon dioxide pollution in the atmosphere because we haven't come around yet to regulating that, even though obviously there've been various attempts to do that. These are choices. And I always come back to the metaphor about the wolf and the lamb, or as Isaiah Berlin put it, freedom for wolves is death to lambs. Or as Woody Allen said, in the end times, the lamb will lay down with the lion, but it just won't get that much sleep. (laughs) Let's talk about Ronald Reagan. You brought him up earlier, but that was a really fascinating section of the book about how his whole worldview was shaped by his role at General Electric. Really interesting. Yeah. I know many people have different opinions about Ronald Reagan. I have Republican friends who think he was a great president. I actually think he was one of the most damaging presidents in U.S. history, way worse than Herbert Hoover, for whom I have some sympathy as a man who just faced a colossal problem that he didn't know what to do about. But Reagan did something incredibly damaging, which was that he turned us against our own government. He's more than anyone else responsible for this idea that government is the problem, not the solution. And so one of the questions we had was, how does he come to have those views? And how does he come to be representing this set of views that are extremely similar to what we show Nila and Nam and these other organizations are promoting in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s? And it turns out it's not a coincidence. There is a direct connection between Ronald Reagan and these corporate groups who are pushing this free market ideology. So most people know that before Reagan was a politician, he was an actor, but almost nobody knows how that evolution took place. And many people also don't know that in the 1940s, Reagan was a pro-New Deal Democrat. He was the president of a union, the Screen Actors Guild. But by the time he runs for office in the early 1960s, he's an anti-union, anti-government, hard Republican. So how does that happen? And so what we show in the book is that this transformation takes place while he is working for the General Electric Corporation and specifically being mentored by one of the most anti-union, anti-government executives in America at that time, a man by the name of Lemuel. Well, where hired Reagan to do two things. One was to host the television program General Electric Theater, which was one of the most popular TV shows in America in the late 1950s. 
And through this TV program, Reagan became extremely well known to the American people, much more so than he, than he was when he was just making movies with chimpanzees in Hollywood. And the TV show every week would present a didactic story of Americans succeeding by their own individual initiative, without the help of government, without the help of anyone. So that was the public face of Ronald Reagan. He becomes very, very famous and he begins to develop this persona that people came to know and love as a great communicator, which he was, he was a great communicator. But the other half of his job was serving as a public face of GE's corporate propaganda program. So GE ran a massive propaganda campaign to try to educate, or as Bulware once admitted, to re-educate GE workers, their families, community members, teachers who worked in communities that had GE facilities, to, to treat the government as suspect, to feel that the government threatened American prosperity and freedom, that the government was the problem, not the solution, to distrust their own union representatives, to make the case that workers would be better off trusting GE managers than their own unions. And all the while that GE is promoting this free market ideology, they're actually conspiring to rig electricity markets, for which they later become are prosecuted in the 1960s. So it's another example of the extreme hypocrisy and dishonesty of many of these claims. But getting back to Reagan, so Reagan becomes the spokesperson for this set of beliefs. He goes all across the country giving speeches, lectures, doing the rubber chicken circuit. And during this time, we see his views changing. He begins to believe the things that he is saying on behalf of GE. And there's one other thing that we know from his biographers. So GE executives were given reading lists of books that they were supposed to promote to their own managers and like shop foremen and stuff. And these were a set of extremely right-wing, radically laissez-faire books. One of which was Friedrich von Hayek's famous 1944 book, The Road to Serfdom, which presents this dichotomous view that you either have free markets or you're living under totalitarianism. A group of business executives associated with the University of Chicago had arranged for Reader's Digest to publish a condensed version of that book, which similar to what they did to Adam Smith, takes out all of Hayek's caveats, all of his nuances, even a section where he talks about why you do need social security, all of that gets stripped out. And we know from his own biographers that it's the Reader's Digest version that Ronald Reagan read in the 1950s. Yeah, and you point out in your book that Carter and Clinton also did some deregulation that led to bad results. In, in Carter's case, it led to greater unemployment when trying to get a hold of the economy and reduce stagflation by raising interest rates. And then in Clinton's case, the deregulation of the telecommunications industry led to monopolization and skyrocketing rates. But you point out that even though Democratic presidents had maybe succumbed to the political pressures, they weren't true believers in this stuff. And for that reason, you seem a bit more forgiving of their actions. Yeah, this was a tricky part of the book to write because we want to let the chips fall where they do. And we want to be equal opportunity critics. And, you know, if Democrats do things we think were hurtful or wrong, then we want to call that out as much. And so one of the things we show in the book is how deeply influential these views became. So that by the time we get to the presidency of Jimmy Carter, we see Democrats embracing anti-regulatory ideology as well. And so we do argue, particularly in the Clinton administration, that the deregulation of telecommunications, as well as deregulation of banking, is extremely damaging. And many economists think that the financial deregulation of the Clinton years led directly to the 2008 crash, which wiped out trillions of dollars 
of American wealth. And many people who lost their homes never recovered financially from that. So Bill Clinton comes in for a lot of criticism in this book. And my own views of that history changed a lot actually doing this work, which is always a good sign when you go into a project and you find evidence that makes you revise your own views on the things. But that said, you're right that we do make a distinction that I think is an important one. And it has to do with the word deregulation. So in the Carter administration, deregulation was understood to mean deregulating markets. And so one of the examples we look at is the deregulation of trucking. And we agree that Carter was right to want to deregulate trucking because rules, regulations on trucking had been put in place back in 1930, something called the Motor Carrier Act. And whether it was right or wrong in the 1930s, it was designed to try to help build a trucking industry in which truckers could make a living wage. Whether that was right or wrong at the time, people could argue about, but over the years, all kinds of bits had been added on and all kinds of interpretations had been made so that the regulations were a patchwork quilt of incoherent and in many cases ridiculous things. And so there was no question that there was a good argument for deregulating trucking and allowing it to be much more of a market-based business. And we agree with that. But what happens under Reagan is that Reagan doesn't just deregulate markets like trucking or aviation, which we can argue about the pros and cons of say, aviation deregulation, because the theory was that deregulation would lead to more competition in commercial aviation actually ended up leading to consolidation and less competition. And it's the same thing we've seen in telecommunications. But Reagan begins to use the word, the same word to also mean something really quite different, which is the weakening or the rolling back or the repeal of statutes that protect people like environmental statutes or occupational health and safety statutes or what we're seeing today with child labor. And so he calls that deregulation too. And so he begins to work to try to weaken a whole half a century worth of protections, hard won protections for workers, for consumers, for the environment under the name of deregulation to let markets do their thing. But the whole reason those regulations were in place in the first place was as a response to market failure, that markets had created these problems, markets had hurt workers, had damaged the environment. And so we begin to see with Reagan, this alignment of the Republican party with anti-consumer, anti-environmental and anti-worker positions, which in the case of the environment is a huge reversal. If you go back to the 1910s, 20s, Republicans were leaders in the environmental movement in this country. But after Reagan, they become leaders in the attempt to weaken or even remove environmental protection. It does seem like we have to learn the same lessons over and over again. So we're just about out of time. I was wondering if you want to read the last paragraph of your book, or if you have it handy, otherwise I'll read it. Why don't you read it? Okay. All right. So this is how your book ends. And I think it's a good summary. And I think it's good that we're ending with it rather than beginning with it, because we have all this lead up (laughs) to try to show why this is true. The deification of markets and the demonization of government has deprived us of the tools and the insights we need to address the challenges before us, to live long and healthy lives, to generate prosperity, and to coexist in concord with each other and with the non-human inhabitants of our planet. It is time we rejected the myth of market fundamentalism and re-embraced the proven tools we have at our disposal. It takes governance to address the problems that people pursuing our self-interest create. One does not have to be a socialist to come to this conclusion, only an observer. Ronald Reagan was wrong. Our most consequential problems have arisen not because of too much government, but because of too little. 
government is not the solution to all our problems, but it is the solution to many of our biggest ones. Thank you so much for coming out to Delving In. Naomi Oreskes, Professor of the History of Science and of Earth and Planetary Sciences at Harvard University and the co-author of The Big Myth, How American Business Taught Us to Loathe Government and Love the Free Market. So thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.